Lord Jesus, you are the exalted one as we've been singing, and we worship you today. And we pray, we ask that you would be exalted through the preaching of your word now, that by your spirit you would deliver it straight to our hearts, and we ask that you would be exalted in our response to your word today as we surrender to what you have to say to us, as we obey what you have to say to us, to each of us and to all of us. Would you speak now? Would you do your work here amongst your people for your purposes? We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, returning King. Amen. Well, has it started for you? It has started for us. The knock on the door, the door hanger with the face on it, with the political party's colors on it, drumming up support for their candidate. If you started receiving phone calls and visits at your door, we have an election coming up in October, and parties are sure that they have found the person, the presence, that will capture the attention and imagination of Canadians, that will propel them to victory in October and allow them to form the government and lead our nation. Uh, if you're paying attention to the news, you also see that uh, just to the south of us, uh, the Americans who, who do nothing small, <laughs> we think, man, the election started already here? That's not till October. <laughs> uh, down there, they're in full, they're, they're in full uh, election mode down there already, and uh, they've got a year and a bit to go still. But uh, you've seen that, the Democrats tripping over each other, they got like 20 plus just trying to be the person, the presence who says, I can deliver victory, I can make the difference, and I can bring victory in, in November 2020. And the UK, this past week, uh, they're sure that they have found, their ruling party is sure that they have found their guy who is the person, the presence who will drive them to uh, continued victory as a party and deliver on the whole Brexit thing. And people are looking for that one person that's going to make the difference. Uh, this week is the baseball trade deadline, and teams are frantically searching for who is the one guy, the one presence that we can come and place in our team, in our locker room, on the field, who's going to propel us to victory because he is so talented and who will inspire the rest of the team to play above the levels they've been capable of to this point. And we watch the news and we watch Sports Center, and we kind of shake our heads at that sometimes and say, these things are so much bigger than one person, aren't they? Yes, one person can make a difference, but there's so much bigger than that. And we say, really, you're that wrapped up in one person. And yet, as followers of Christ, we can do the very same thing in our lives and our ministries, can't we? Sure we can. We can say as a church, if we only had this preacher, this musician, this format, this curriculum, then we would be in a position to make an impact for Jesus with the gospel. If only we had that one person, that one presence. And the reality is we're dead wrong and we're making it all about us. A.W. Tozer once said that if the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from the church in North America today, 95% of what we do would carry on and nobody would notice the difference. He went on to say if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the early church in the book of Acts, 95% of what they did would come to a screeching halt and everybody would know the difference. It's amazing, isn't it? The person, the presence that we need is in fact the Holy Spirit. And we saw that in Acts chapter 1. He is the one who makes the difference in our lives as we walk with Christ. 
He is the difference that makes a the person that makes a difference in our ministries as we serve the Lord together. Together, excuse me. He is the one that provides all of that. He makes the difference. It's not any single one of us. Do you believe that this morning? Well, here we are walking through our series in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And we have seen that the Holy Spirit is not a ministry process or program to be mimicked. The Holy Spirit is not a mysterious force to be harnessed for our purposes. The Holy Spirit is, in fact, God. God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is here with you. He is here with us. He is here in us. And He works in us to produce His fruit, as we saw in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit, the character of Christ developed and demonstrated in the lives of His people is in fact the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of His presence and work. And without it, without character that's becoming more like Christ, which is most often demonstrated in how we respond to and interact with each other, how we treat one another, if we don't have that, we have a question to ask, is the Holy Spirit actually even present in my life? Because that is the evidence of His presence. We went on to see that the Holy Spirit works not just in us, but amongst us. As He gives us His gifts for service within the body as we serve one another and as we serve each other. And we saw that those gifts and that ministry, that call to service within the body, is given in 1 Corinthians 13, 7 as what? As a manifestation of the Spirit. Another evidence that He is in fact present. And as we in humility and love serve one another, that is a demonstration that he is in fact here and active and at work. And we're told that that is given to demonstrate his presence and it's given for the common good. It's not to exalt or elevate or promote one particular person or group. It's about the, the good of all of us as we grow to become more like Christ. We've also seen, as we spent two weeks in Romans chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit works for us. He works for us. And so often we forget that and neglect that, but the Holy Spirit is at work for us. And so when we don't know how to pray and we don't know what to pray, what do we do? We just keep on pouring out our hearts to God because the Spirit groans right to the throne of God on our behalf. And He delivers the message right there to the Father. Well, we also know that the Holy Spirit works in us and among us and for us, but He also works through us. Amen? He works through us as we serve together. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we come to Acts chapter 4. And when we come to Acts chapter 4, we're going to ask ourselves, what difference did it make that the Holy Spirit, what happened when the Holy Spirit was present and active in the early church in the first century? And we're looking at Acts chapter 4, not to say that we're expecting the Holy Spirit to work here and now in the identical exact way and method and format and specifics that he worked there and then. But we are looking and we're going to see that he works in similar ways. There are similar effects and impacts as we walk through. There are patterns we can detect here that we see throughout the rest of the New Testament and down through church history landing right here this morning. And so if we look to Acts chapter 4, we're going to look this morning at this idea of where what happens when the Spirit of the Lord is there. Well, when the Spirit of the Lord is here, where He is, lives are changed. As we come to Acts chapter 4, we need to understand 
that Acts chapter 4 is the aftermath, the fallout really, from Acts chapter 3 and what took place there. At the end of Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, we read 46 and 47, we read this. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So after, at Pentecost, 3,000 people came to Christ. After that, as the disciples, the followers of Jesus, continued to learn, continued to meet and pray together and have fellowship and, and to break bread together and to study the apostles' teaching together, as that continued, day by day, people were coming to Christ. One heart at a time, a few people at a time, every day, people were being added and coming to Christ. And it is in that setting where they enjoyed the, the work of God, the impact of the gospel, and the approval and acceptance of the people around them. It's in that setting that Luke chooses to record this particular miracle. Now we know that the apostles were doing other miracles that were never recorded here. We're told that they were doing all of these things, but why did he specifically choose this one? to include for us as Acts chapter 3. I believe Luke chose this one because this is the miracle, this is the event, this is the, the uh, moment that ignited the first conflict between the followers of Jesus and those on the outside. Things had been going smoothly, people had approved of them, things were happening quite nicely, and after this event, things begin to change dramatically. So what happened in Acts chapter 3? Peter and John, two of the apostles, were going to the temple just as they had been. That was their practice. It was three in the afternoon, time for afternoon prayer and sacrifices. And so they were heading to the temple for worship. As they came across Solomon's porch, Solomon's colonnade, that porch on the outside of the temple grounds, they came through into what was known as the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles could come for worship. And as they walked through and they got probably to the gate of, to the court of women, which would then lead to the court where all the men could go and then lead to where the priests could go, as they got to that gate where there was the largest crowd, they walked past someone who was a fixture on the temple grounds. He was a man who had been lame since birth. He was now in his 40s. And for four decades, his family, his friends, had picked him up every morning, carried him to the temple, and placed him at this strategic location where the people would be coming in and out two, three times a day. The crowds would come. And why was he placed there? So that he could beg. If somebody, if anybody is going to have a heart of compassion and give to help me feed myself and, and, and provide for me and my family, who is going to do that but people at, heading to worship, Right? You would think. And so that's where they placed him. And he would beg for alms as people would come in and out of, of worship. And people got to know him. People got to expect that he was there as they walked through because he was there for four decades. Every time you went, he was, he was just there. People got to know him. Well, on this particular day, Peter and John came walking into the temple for worship, and as they came walking up, this man waved at them and said, Sir, sir, excuse me, gentlemen, do you, alms for the poor? Do you have anything you can give me? Look, I cannot walk. I cannot function. I cannot work. Do you have anything you can give me to help, help me feed myself? And Peter and John, is, in this famous exchange, this well-known exchange, said, we don't have any silver or gold. Like, our pockets are empty. But we've got something even better. 
we'll give you what we do have, and that is this. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And instantly, the man was healed. A man who had never stood, who had never walked, who had never balanced himself, stood up, and with full strength and coordination was able to walk about. Instant healing. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Isn't it? You people are hard to impress. Yeah, absolutely. And you can imagine the crowds. The crowds who saw this exchange as they're pushing past to come in and out of the the gate of the temple courts. And they see this man who for decades since birth had been sitting there. And now he's standing up and walking around and praising God and thanking Peter and John. It's an amazing moment. Well, Acts chapter 3 tells us that as he clung to Peter and John, probably tears streaming down his face, gratitude overflowing as he's clinging to them, as they're leaving and they get out to Solomon's porch there, the crowds are gathered around. They saw this man and they, known, they knew he'd been healed. They saw these men and they knew that this, had, this interaction had been what made the difference. So the crowds pressed around, much like they had done earlier with Jesus. And they wanted one of two things. They wanted an explanation for what had happened, or they wanted to see what was going to happen next. Do another one. (laughs) Show us something else. And so the crowd is gathered around. And what do Peter and John do on the porch of the temple grounds in that moment with this crowd pressing in? Peter is not high-fiving John. They're not autographing bulletins. They're not handing out flyers as to where we'll be next week. You know, none of that stuff. What do they do? They take that moment and that opportunity to say, this isn't about us. This is about Jesus. And with that crowd in that place in that moment, they go through and they explain the gospel. Who Jesus is, why he died, why God rose him again. They explain the gospel to this crowd outside the temple. And verse 26 tells us at the end of chapter 3, That not only did they present that information, but they called them to a response. God, having raised up his servant, Peter says, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Saying Jesus came to you as a blessing from God, having died for you and rose again. He came to you offering forgiveness that you would turn from your wickedness and come and embrace forgiveness. It is here that we begin In Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. And they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. As Peter and John are preaching the gospel right there, and it sounds like this went on for quite some time, if it's already evening, when they were arrested. They're standing there preaching the gospel to this crowd of onlookers. The priests who were on duty, the temple guard who had been given authority by Rome to police the temple, and the high priest came. The Sadducees, sorry, came. And they gathered around them, and they came to arrest them. Now, the Sadducees is one of the the religious groups. We know the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two of the most prominent uh, teaching groups within Judaism at the time. And, And the Sadducees boasted this. 
The high priest at the time was one of theirs. The high priest and his family were Sadducees. That gave them a little bit more influence, a little bit more sway, power, and influence and control in what was going on. The Sadducees denied anything supernatural. They denied the existence of angels. And the Sadducees flat out completely denied a physical, literal resurrection. Now that's a problem. And the reason that's a problem is because the heart of the gospel is not just the death of Jesus. The gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection of Jesus, you have no hope. Without the resurrection of Jesus, you're done. There is no eternal life. Without believing in the resurrection of Jesus, you are not saved. That's the gospel. That's Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no salvation apart from the resurrection of Jesus. His death and resurrection is the gospel. And so these men are preaching the resurrection of Jesus and eternal life in his name, and the Sadducees are greatly annoyed, as Scripture says. This is not something that they want spread around. So what do they do? They go and they arrest these messengers and they say, we're going to shut these guys down. They take them, they cart them away, and they put them in custody overnight. But what happened? Did the crowd run away in fear and forget everything they'd heard? What does verse 4 tell us? But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men now came to about 5,000. More believed and joined. And now we're up to about 5,000 followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. It's amazing. The word of God was not bound even though the messengers were. The spirit of God was not limited even though the messengers of Jesus were. That's what Paul goes on to say in 2 Timothy 2 from prison. He says to Timothy, I am bound in chains, but that's okay. The word of God is not bound. The word of God does not come back to him empty and void like a meaningless hollow echo. When God speaks, his words deliver on what they were intended to do. And so the word had gotten out, and the word of God and the spirit of God transformed lives by renewing minds. That's what happened. It went deep and it brought a response. And friends, where the Spirit of the Lord is, lives are changed. We've already talked about that in terms of followers of Jesus. From the inside out, lives are changed if the Spirit of the Lord is there. And when we proclaim the gospel, if the Spirit of the Lord is there, the Word of God is heard and embraced and obeyed. The Word of God is not heard and ignored and debated. Now there are many that will do that. But where the Spirit of God is active, there are those who are going to hear and listen and obey His Word. And I want you to see this. The greatest impact of the miracle in Acts chapter 3 was not on the legs of that lame man who was healed. The greatest impact of that miracle in Acts chapter 3 was in the hearts of those who saw it and then listened to the Gospel and responded. That is why the miracles were done. To demonstrate that God is here and God is at work. And you better listen to what these messengers have to say. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, lives are changed. 
But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is also gospel courage. And God gets the glory. Let's pick up in verse 5 and see what happened next. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So who is this group that now assembles the next day and calls Peter and John to account in front of them? Well, when we read words like like verse 5 here, the rulers, the elders, and the scribes, he's describing the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest ruling body that the Jews had over themselves, allowed by the Romans. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men plus the high priest. When you read rulers, those are the chief priests, and often in the Gospels you hear about the chief priests. Those are the the, the head priests of each of the different classifications and groupings of priests. They were there. The elders are the, the, the family and tribal heads from within the 12 tribes of Israel. The, the um, scribes are the experts in interpreting the law of Moses. These are the influential, powerful people, plus the high priest, gathered together that call Peter and John in in front of them. It's an intimidating group, an intimidating scene. Why would they call them in? They called them in because this was their job. According to Deuteronomy 13, if someone does a miracle, a sign, or a wonder, in the purpose of teaching and using that for teaching, that's to be examined very carefully. And if that person is then teaching something to lead people away from the true and living God, that's a false prophet, a false teacher to be stoned. This is a capital case. But if, in fact, that teaching and that teacher are seen to be pointing people to the true and living God, then take that miracle as a sign from God to authenticate this messenger and this message and sit up and listen because God has something to say through them. And so this is why they're gathered. They're hauled in. And what is the question they're asked is, what is the power behind this miracle? People today read the Bible and they question miracles. They question miracles. Oh, did those really happen? I've had people say to me in the past, oh, that that kind of thing doesn't happen. And I look at them and go, I agree with you. And they go, really? I go, yeah, that's what makes it a miracle. (laughs) If that kind of thing happened all the time, then it would just be an everyday occurrence. The fact that it doesn't happen and it defies the laws of, of physics and everything else that we have, guess what? That is the supernatural intervention of God to get our attention. It's a miracle. Well, back then, as you read through the New Testament, people did not question whether the miracles happened. 
They saw them happen. They knew they happened. The question was, how? By what power? How many times did the religious leaders try and accuse Jesus of doing his miracles by the power of Satan? That was the question, is what power is behind this? And so when they're given this question, Peter, who is now filled with the Holy Spirit, boldly shares the gospel. With courage, he gives glory to God and he declares the gospel. You killed Jesus and rejected him. God raised him from the dead. He is, in fact, the Messiah, the Savior. There's salvation in no one else. Peter delivers boldly the gospel without fear of men, without fear of consequence. He shows that Jesus is the one spoken of in the Old Testament and that this is, in fact, God's Messiah and God's work going on. And you guys better sit up and take notice. And he concludes in verse 12, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is the bottom line of the gospel. It's Jesus or nothing. And how many people have you heard down through the centuries and around our world today who say, well, if there's only one way to God, and you're saying Jesus is the only way, I won't accept that. A God that only has one way to Him. I, I refuse to believe that. How arrogant are we? Instead of humbly falling before Him and saying, are you serious? The God of the universe against whom we have all rebelled has actually made a way to be rescued and right with Him? Oh, thank Him for that and embrace, embrace this, this rescuer. Why do we not view it that way? That's what Peter proclaims. There is salvation in no one else. Jesus is it. He's not a way. He is the way, period. And he proclaims this message boldly to those who were standing there to uh, judge on his life and death. And this is what he delivers. And so I'm just going to ask briefly this morning, what's your response to that message? Have you responded to Jesus, the Christ, Son of God, who is the only way to have a forgiveness for our rebellion against God and eternal life? Have you surrendered yourself to Him? He is the only way. Quit chasing after all these other roads that lead nowhere but destruction and judgment and come surrender yourself to Jesus the Christ, the only way to be right with the Father and be grateful and amazed at His hand extended to us. Isn't that what Eric was just talking about? How simple it is, how serious our sin is and yet how merciful and gracious God is to extend His hand to us. Come and embrace Him. It's amazing how often we back away from sharing that message, isn't it? What was the safe way to go for Peter and John? Well, what do you guys want to hear? <laughs> uh, we're open to direction here. What would work for everybody? And we'll just have peace and everything will be happy and we'll just carry on and get back to the way things were. But that's not what happened. As you look through the book of Acts and you, you read of the early church, most of the time, there are a few exceptions, but most of the time that the disciples shared the gospel of Jesus, they were not in quiet, secluded, personal, one-on-one -on -one moments of peace and calm. It was in the middle of chaos and crowds and, and excitement and hostility and all kinds of things going on. 
Uh, Timothy Johnson, who's a, a pastor in the United States, said that a few years ago, he was heading to a meeting and he was at a, the airport, Baltimore, Washington International at the time, and he said he was in line for the security check through everybody's favorite process and part of flying, right? And he said as he got through, they pointed at him and he was selected. He was, the, he was the lucky winner of the day to step aside and have a more thorough check. And he said as he stood there and they took his bag and they opened it up, he said the man that opened it up and started um, uh, opening the bag, he said he put up his hand and said, back up, sir. Stand back there. Resist the urge to help me, please. You stand and watch. He said he started unloading his stuff and started feeling along the lining of the bag and checking it out thoroughly. And as he did, he said, I noticed on his hand, on his right hand, there was a silver ring and there was a cross on it. So he said, I pointed at it and just said, I like that ring and that cross. He said the man paused in what he was doing and he looked down and then he looked up at me and he said, yes, the cross. You know what that means? That means that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. You know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for trouble in your bag. You know what one of the biggest things we're worried about in looking in these bags is dynamite. He says, you know where the word dynamite comes from? It comes from the Greek word dunamis, which means power. And as a Christian, I know that God is the one with all absolute power all times and all places. That's why he sent Jesus to forgive me and to rescue me. And his power continues to work and his power is at work right here, right now, doing his job even as I'm doing mine. Mr. Johnson, your bag looks fine. You're free to go. And then he turned and started talking to the next guy. And he said, I walked away totally amazed. He said, I I was excited, but he said, I was just amazed that here's this man in the middle of an incredibly chaotic moment, noise, crowds everywhere, things happening, and he took 15 seconds to tell me the gospel. And then he turned on and kept on with his day, right there in that moment. He said, I had to think, how how often do I take that opportunity? Would I have just said, oh yeah, thanks, my mom gave me that, and move on. But here he is, that's what the apostles did. Here's Peter and John Not just preaching in the temple courts, but now they're preaching in front of the the Sanhedrin. So this opportunity before the crowds in chapter 3, this opportunity before the Sanhedrin in chapter 4, in a hostile leaders, in a more closed environment, they preach boldly, the message has not changed, and the opportunity is not missed. So where does it go? Well, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing that the man who was healed, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. How can we condemn this? This guy who spent 40 years plus as a lame man, he's now healed. How can we condemn that? This is a good thing. So what are they going to do? But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. 
for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. They heard the gospel clearly. They heard this message, and they saw the boldness, the gospel courage that these men had. And they had no category for that. Here we've got uneducated, simple fishermen, and they're trying to school us, the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious body, in the work of God. Where do these guys get this? And they took note. They recognized that these men had been with Jesus. The Sanhedrin was not privy to the Holy Spirit, did not understand the Holy Spirit, and so on. But the apostles sure did. And here they were in the power of the Spirit preaching the gospel. And these men are, are, are saying, this isn't us. This isn't for our glory. This isn't for our reputation and promotion. Jesus did this. It's in the name of Jesus that we did this. And when they use that term, in the name, it doesn't mean that they're just throwing the word Jesus around and magic things are happening. It's in His name. It's in all that He is, in all that He does, in all that He stands for. Jesus did this, not me. This is about Him. And isn't that what Jesus said in John 15? I'm the vine, you are the branches. If man abide in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The Greek word there for nothing is a, is a fascinating word. Do you know what it means? Zip. Nothing. It is He who does it. That's what's going on there. And they said, now we, we can't deny that this happened. We've seen it. The people have seen it. We can't deny this miracle took place. We can't condemn it. How do you get mad that this guy's been healed? So what are we going to do? Well, let's try to hide it. Let's try to keep this from getting out. And so they make this declaration that it is now, in verse 17 and 18, they make this declaration that it is now illegal to share the gospel and preach the good news of Jesus. It is now illegal to do that. And they threatened them with what would happen to them if they continued on. But we're told in Romans 13, this same Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we are to submit to and obey the ruling authorities above us. God has placed them there. However, the Word of God teaches that we are to obey the ruling authorities unless those authorities give commands that defy God's commands and violate God's commands. And then what are we to do, as Peter and John said? Well, you sort out for yourself whether we should actually obey God or you. He said, we're going to go with God. We obey God and we trust Him with the consequences. That's what we're to do. We're to simply obey God and trust Him with the consequences. That's what these men did. You see, they understand that those in government, those in authority over us, they will absolutely one day answer to God for how they treated everyone, but how they treated His people. They will stand before God and give answer to him for that. God deals with that. My responsibility is not how they treat me as a follower of Jesus. My responsibility is how I live as a follower of Jesus and whether I'm faithful to the gospel mission I've been given. I leave that in God's hands. 
God will assess how I have done in walking with him and, and doing what he's called me to do, and God will assess them in terms of how they've treated people along the way. That's what Jesus said with Pilate. Oh, you have authority, but that's been given to you. There's accountability for this. And that's what the martyrs from Acts chapter 7 with Stephen, right on down through up until today, continued to believe. We obey men until they violate the commands of God. And then we just continue to obey God and we trust the results to Him and we know that those in control and authority will answer to God for how they judge His people. So that's what we're to do. Leith Anderson in his book, The Jesus Revolution, talks about how they, they went, a number of years ago, they went on a trip, a ministry trip, to go to a communist country where Christians were being persecuted intensely, faithfully, regularly. And they were going undercover to kind of sneak into this country and they were going to go around from house to house and to, to preach the word and to encourage believers and to find out what was going on there, all those kind of things. But he said, we didn't have a direct flight, so we flew into the neighboring country and we were spending the night there before we went into this communist country the next day. And he said, we met in the home of these believers where we were staying that night and they invited other believers to come. And, and we, so we had this dinner, and we had these great discussions, and we're talking, encouraging each other. And then one of the men in the group said to Leith Anderson and those traveling with him, so you're going there to visit our brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes. Well, we have some Bibles we want you to sneak in there when you go tomorrow. And he said, my first response was, that's illegal. You can't take the Bible there. I'll get into trouble. Other people will get into trouble. That's not good. And he said they kept pressing him and they would not take no for an answer. So here's what they said as they left for the night. They said, we'll be back first thing in the morning before you leave for the airport. Why don't you spend the night asking God what you should do? And he said the next morning we were nervous and we thought, okay, we can, we can, we can hide a couple of Bibles in our luggage and we're going we're gonna to trust God with that and we're going to go. He said these guys showed up with a library they had Bibles and books and study materials and discipleship curriculums and videos. And he said, we looked at each other and went, are you kidding me? He said, we ended up leaving some stuff behind. And we, we loaded our luggage, purses, carry-ons, luggage with all of this stuff. And we went and we got on the plane. And he said, as the plane was preparing to land in this communist country, they handed around a customs form that had your name on the top, your passport number on the top, and it had some very pointed questions. Are you bringing in narcotics? Nope. Are you bringing in food? Nope. Are you bringing in this? Nope. Are you bringing in weapons? Nope. Are you bringing in literature? And he said, we almost hit that question at the same time because we kind of looked at each other and went, hmm. If we say yes, we're about to lose all of this stuff. If we say no, we're lying. What are we going to do? So they all just put their pens down and didn't answer that question. And he said, we got to customs, and the soldiers there came, and they took all of our bags, and we're standing with them with these bags full of Bibles between us. And they looked at our passports, and they read through our forms, and they looked at us and said, thank you very much. On you go. Now, he said, that's not usually the way that might go, and that's not always the way God has worked in those situations. But he did at that time. But he said, the one thing I took away from that is just a reminder that you do things God's way. Man's rules do not supersede God's rules, and I'm here to proclaim the gospel whether people like it or not. That's on them. I'm responsible for delivering the gospel. 
It sounds to me like when Peter said in verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot not share the good news of Jesus. That's 2 Corinthians 5.14 where Paul says, the love of Christ compels us, drives us on, urges us forward. We have to tell others that one died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was risen again. So we can't look at anybody the same anymore because if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. So come be reconciled to God through Jesus. He says that's what drives us. We can't not talk about the gospel. That's who we are. That's what we're all about. Well, listen. Where the Holy Spirit is, where the Spirit of the Lord is, lives are changed, and there is gospel courage, and God gets the glory. And finally, there is prayer, and there is power. Look at verse 24, or 23, rather. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Now just pause there for a second. Their response was not to start a petition. They didn't call the UN. They didn't email the local human rights tribunal. They did not appeal to men. They went over men's heads. They went to the sovereign Lord of the universe. They went straight to God in prayer. You control this situation. They don't. And so they got on their knees together and they prayed. And listen to this prayer, beginning at partway through verse 24 here. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is how they responded. These men, full of the Spirit, having been threatened by people with authority to follow through, the people who had just had Jesus crucified, are now threatening to have them killed. These are not hollow, empty threats. These men now come and they gather together in prayer. And in the light of this new edict to never preach the gospel in Jesus' name again, in light of the threats in verse 21 that had been made against them if they should follow through and continue this ministry, they called out and their focus was on the sovereignty of God. They focused on, look at that first word, Sovereign Lord. Now that is capital L, small o-r-d. When it's all capitals, the word Lord, we know that that's God's personal name. When it's capital L and small O-R-D, that is a title, his position. Sovereign Lord. Do you know what the word for that is? Despota. Absolute ruler. Now for us, the word despot has a very negative connotation, doesn't it? It's because of the evil, selfish sin in the heart of man. And when rulers past and present and future are given absolute authority, that runs wild, doesn't it? 
But this is the right use of the word. Despota, sovereign Lord, absolute ruler. We're going above the heads of the men who just threatened us. You are, in fact, God. And through this prayer they recount, you, re you created the world. You're the creator of all. You are the one who sent Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, your anointed one. You are the planner of all things, including the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. You predestined it. You didn't see it happen and say, oh, well, I'll tuck it into my plan since it's going to happen anyway. You declared it. You promised it. You planned it. You laid it out and said, this is going to happen, and therefore it did. So what does that mean? That means they are driven to the only question they can possibly ask. And that is, in this city, at the hands of these same men, Jesus died according to your plan and your will. What might be your plan and your will for us in this city at the hands of these same men? Where is this going to go for us? Are we going to meet the same end? Now in Canada, the heat's being cranked up on God's people. Christians are no longer welcome in many places. We're not wanted as physicians. We're not wanted as teachers. We're not wanted certainly as preachers or heralds of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. And the pressure keeps getting cranked up, keeps getting cranked up. Senate committees are meeting to discuss whether churches are any value to Canadian society and should continue to be charities and have tax-free status. All those things are happening. It's going to come. It's going to come. And it's going to keep getting raised up. And maybe the good that will come along with it is maybe in Canada, people will take God more seriously. Maybe in Canada, people will take following Jesus more seriously. Maybe we'll take our mission and the gospel more seriously. We stop worrying so much about ourselves and our comfort and our safety and our survival here and now and we'll start embracing the plan of the sovereign Lord of the universe and say, this is in your hands. Just help us to do what you've called us to do. The answer to that question, what's going to happen to us according to God's plan at the hands of these men in this city is simply this. They didn't know. They didn't know. Some of them in that room were soon to die for the cause of Christ. They didn't know. But what's the question they asked? They said, God, consider their threats and the fact that that has our knees knocking and our hands shaking and we got a knot in our stomach and it's tough to sleep tonight. Consider all of that. And then would you simply keep doing what you're doing and would you give us boldness to keep doing what you've sent us to do? Help us to set aside those threats and in the power of the Spirit go through in great boldness to continue to deliver the gospel. And when they had prayed, verse 31, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. With boldness. Isn't that the promise of Acts 1.8? What did Jesus say as he was leaving? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria and to the other parts of the earth, uttermost parts of the earth. And it's where the Spirit of the Lord is. Lives are changed. 
Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is gospel courage, and God gets the glory. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is prayer, and there is power. Because we are dependent on Him, and His plans, and His work, and His direction, and not our own. Amen? The question is, is that here? Is that us? Are our lives being changed from the inside out because the Spirit of God is there producing His fruit? Is it evidence that the Lord is among us as we serve together and we pitch in and we love each other, we humbly serve one another for the common good, demonstrating the presence of the Spirit? Are we relying on Him to work for us in the ways that only He can? And are we seeing as a result of complete dependence on Him lives being changed? Courage to share the gospel. And people being driven to their knees in prayer and watching His power work. May that be true of each of us and of all of us. Amen? Let's sing together.